Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Taxes? Long-term bonds for kids? Really? Ooh, the scariest days in the market. 401k changes and using T-bills, short-term treasuries, and investing the difference. We're going to talk about all of those, but first we got to give the disclaimer, folks. Welcome to Revere Asset, Your Money Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Stewart. We've got Don, Michael, and Ted with us, and we're all going to talk everything markets and stock nerds. Don't worry, you're going to get the red meat. We're going to give you all the all the details, but first I got to give the disclaimer, folks, this is for your education and edification purposes only. It's never meant to be construed as investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, please seek out your financial advisor, or if you want to seek out us, you want to talk to me or Don, you can certainly reach out to us and we'd be happy to talk to you, give you a complimentary portfolio review, or just look over what you are doing. But all of these are are ideas and things that we use in the shop. They may not be suitable for you. All right, enough. The disclaimer is out of the way. Got that knocked out. Got that knocked out. That's right. All right. Taxes, taxes, taxes. We're going to start with taxes and why you don't lose them. Some people think you do. But but I did get an email. So this is from a, a, a listener, a guy named Jim. And I know and he says, um, He said, if I sell an option in 2022 and it expires worthless in 2023, which year do I recognize the gain in? Right? Okay. Now, he's not a client, so I've got to give the disclaimer Uh, and email. I said, without double-checking the tax code, there's my disclaimer. Right. Without double-checking the tax code, and I'm pretty sure anyway, I would say (laughs) that it expires worthless. I would say when it expires worthless which would be akin to a sale. Before that, unless you closed out the position, and that is key, folks, how would you know? How do you know that it won't come roaring back in 2023 and then you've you know, got a gain? Unless you're talking about bankruptcy or something that would impair the company so the option was deemed worthless prior to 2023. Otherwise, how would you determine the correct, proper capital gain? Now, that does lead me to uh, uh, one thing, folks, because a lot of people, they'll buy these penny, a lot of, the, a lot of times they're penny stocks, yeah. but they'll buy these ideas they hear about in the pharma, the next new cancer cure, whatever, it's a penny stock, and it goes, you know, they buy it at 80 cents or $1.50, and within a few months or a year or two, it's 
0.0 sure. or 0.0001. Folks, the way that you're able to book that loss, okay, is you actually got to call up Fidelity or Schwab or TD or, God forbid, you're at one of the other places. Um, I won't name them. You need to call the trading desk and ask them because if they're not being traded, they can actually – now, I don't know about free trades anymore but because they're now they're free trades, but but you can ask them – and it used to be a dollar. For a dollar, just take it off the books. Just act act like it's a sale. And there are these scavengers that'll buy it for, you know, a hundredth of a penny just in case something happens later. Okay? Yeah. But if you really want to cleanly get it off the books to actually recognize that loss, sometimes they recommend you do that. So that's just that. Now, the the thing that I wanted to talk about, though, is I wanted to talk about wash sales. Wash sales. Because a lot of people well, first of all, let's talk about the capital gains in general. Okay. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about the investing rules because people don't understand them. But here's a very easy way to, to think about it. Whatever is the in the best interest of the IRS, the Treasury, yep. is usually the rule. In other words, whatever brings in them, them the most tax revenue, that's the rule. Okay. So at the end of the year, or after year end, more accurately, after all the realized gains and losses are tabulated, put, you know, they're in the books yeah. for that year. So in January the next year, you will net all of your short-term gains and losses. Mm-hmm. Then you will net all your long-term gains and losses. If you have two gains, which this year is probably unlikely, but you will have short-term gains at your ordinary income tax rate, your marginal tax rate, mm-hmm. and then you'll have capital gains rates, and it varies on your income, but most people that have investments and have enough taxable accounts to have capital gains will be 20%. Yeah. But if you're in a lower income tax bracket, your capital gains may be even 10%. So your capital gains rate can vary, right? Yeah. In fact, it can even be zero, but most people that are in such a low tax bracket don't have investments with, with capital gains. But so if you have so if you have two different gains in both categories, they just pay taxes at different rates. Mm. Okay. If you have a one is a gain and one is a loss, you will net those two together so that you'll so if you have a short-term loss and a long-term capital gain, uh-huh. you'll net those two together and you'll either have a net long-term capital gain or a net short-term capital loss, because one's going to be bigger than the other. Oh. With me so far. Okay. So then you, you, you merge all those together. If you have a gain, you're just going to pay that, whatever, whether it's short-term or long-term, whatever the appropriate tax bracket is. If it's a loss, mm-hmm. you can offset $3,000 against ordinary income and carry the rest forward for future gains, which will be important for later. So okay. mark that in your, make a little footnote there. Roll the that last snowball one. down the hill a little. Okay. All okay. Right. Now. Now. If you've got short-term losses and long-term losses, because you didn't listen to this show early on this year and you didn't get defensive and you got clobbered and you're down 25%, even with a 60-40 bond portfolio, mm. right? Then then you will you will you can use three thousand dollars against ordinary income, but guess which one they make you use up first? The short-term losses, because those are theoretically more valuable because they offset short-term gains at your ordinary income rate. Yeah. I mean, it's your, it's your, yeah, your ordinary income rate. So that you, you'll have to take 3000 against that first. 
And then whatever that is, they will remain in character and you'll carry that net operating loss, that loss carry forward. So in the next year, you can have big gains. So for instance, very quickly, in, in, in 2001, I had a client, actually it was my, my own family, okay. and, and we said, look, we've got these losses. It was a tough year. We weren't, weren't really down big. And by the way, your performance is not just your realized gains and losses. That's irrelevant. Unrealized gains and losses also count. So you hear that moron advisor saying, well, it's not a loss until you sell it. Right. What? Your performance, the unrealized gains and losses are baked into the performance too. That's why they call it total return, you moron. Okay? All right. Study some finance, <laughs> not, not marketing. No, seriously, it's not a loss till you sell it. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I, there should be a regula- The SEC should pass a regulation that's, that's a violation to say something that stupid. It makes me laugh every and, and time. Seriously. Folks, so if you have an advisor that tells you that it's not a loss till you sell it, please call me up, give me his name and number, and I'll be, or her, and I'd be happy to call them and explain why that is not true, and it's asinine, and you're, it's you're, you're committing financial malpractice by spewing that trash, yeah. that garbage. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got that off my chest. Now, right. where was I? I lost my train of thought. I got um, fired up for a second. Um, um, I was talking about... I like, oh, I like fired up Danny. Yeah, yeah, so... so, so fired up Danny. <laughs> so, so you can... you can, But so in, two, 20, in, in, in 2001, I said, Dad, let's, let's, let's book some of these losses. He said, why? We don't really have gains to offset. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, but when the market really starts a rip, snot, and rally you'll have losses to offset those gains and it frees you up. It's almost like an IRA till you exceed those losses, right? You don't have to worry about paying any tax. So even though he was kind of flat on the year, I booked a bunch of losses. Anything that was material, I'm not going to book a $200 loss, but if it's a couple thousand or more, I'm going to book it. And it's all relative to the size of the account. Folks, you can buy that same stock 31 days later and it's not considered a wash sale. Or you could sell Pfizer to book the loss and buy Merck or buy something in tandem if you want the exact same or similar risk profile, right? So you can book these losses, but yet still maintain your same risk posture, or you can just sell that position and wait 31 days. Yes. But then later, so later in 2003, we got a rip, snort, and rally, and he didn't have to pay any gains for 2003 and four. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you still get the rise, but it, it frees you up to be more flexible. Ah, okay. So you always want to do loss harvesting. Now here at Revere, because we keep our losses small, we book them right away if they start getting out of hand. We don't have big losses at the end of the year where we have to go do a bunch of tax loss harvesting. That's what they call it. Huh. We do it ongoing and keeping our losses small. We don't wait till the end of the year. And then they go, well, this is down 20%. Um, and by the way, if your moron advisor tells you, Average down, that's another sucker play. Oh, we bought it here. Well, now it's gone down 15%. Uh, let's buy more. Right. Uh, maybe you should have been selling. Maybe you need to sell it. Maybe right. you need to revisit. Is the story still intact? Don't just summarily. That's so they don't have to admit that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, anyway, so you can carry that loss. So, so that's that. And Don, did I explain that pretty well? Does did you follow that? You did, you did, Dan. I'm I'm happy with that. Well, thank Not, you. Nothing to add here. Even even a blind squirrel, man. All right. <laughs> so so now let's talk about wash sales. Wash sales. So a wash sale. The government says really smart guys like me. We don't want you gaming the system. 
So we don't want you going in in December 15th and I've got Microsoft that's down, uh-huh. but I still like Microsoft, but I'm down temporarily. So I book that loss and I sell it. So I got that loss on the books and then I buy it two days later and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't really want to sell Microsoft. You just wanted the loss on the books. So we're going to call that a wash sale and we're not going to let you offset losses against other stocks. Not Microsoft, not Microsoft, but other stocks. So you can't offset Apple or Google or Tesla or General Electric or Exxon, right? Oh. However, so but everybody thinks that they lose that wash sale. Yeah. Okay. They think it goes away forever. No, when you sell Microsoft again, the second sale, if it's a gain, it will be netted against the, the first loss. Mm-hmm. So you'll have a smaller gain or possibly a net loss, whatever it is. Yeah. Or if it's a loss, now you have a bigger loss, right? Okay. So the whole point is those are netted together and you don't lose it. In fact, the brokerage firms like Schwab, TD, and Fidelity, they will adjust your basis. So they'll call it a wash sale. And then when you unwind the second time, they'll adjust that for you. So it's actually already in their numbers. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard to follow. Here's the tricky part that they don't that they don't clarify that I wish they were a little and look, they're following what the regulators tell them to do, so I get it. They will still show a gross wash sale number at the end of the year. Okay. So on a pretty large account, we may have ninety on a you know million dollar account or bigger, we may have a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars of wash sales during the whole year, right? But in actuality, at the end of the year, there's maybe five hundred or a thousand bucks left that will be postponed till next year. Yeah. It's not, it's, but they show you that gross number in aggregate, even though it's all been used up. You don't have to worry about that. So some people get worried or get afraid by wash sales. You should not let a wash sale um, necessarily deter you. Mm-hmm. Basically you booked the loss. Now you got to figure out, do I really like that stock that much more? Right. Right. In, in, in 30 in, in 30 days within 30 days that uh, i need to buy it back it's for 11 what are you talking about don Don's <laughs> talking in the background Don's over there something going on oh he's he's having a conversation anyway keep uh, going. anyway so so we we have a uh a, a loss sale and and if you buy that stock back so you either buy something different or you buy that same stock back mm-hmm. knowing that you're going to have a wash sale knowing that that's a possibility, okay? But you're not going to lose it. So don't be afraid by it. Don't get nervous by having a loss sale. Yeah. Okay? Yes. It's not going to kill you. But in any event, the main thing is you always want to do, you always want to do lost harvesting toward the end of the year. And here's another secret. Don't wait till December 15th or 20th or 25th. Because those losses get bigger. Well, if your stock's done badly, everybody else is doing the same thing. Right. And they start, they all wait. They're la- people are lazy. They all wait to the second half of December. By then, your 10% loss is now 20%. Right. It's the holidays. Right. So up. you want to start doing it at the end of November or early, early December. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And, and now, because we trim them very quickly, we don't have that problem. We've already got those losses the little small losses. We don't let them turn into big losses. Yeah. But that's really important to do because it will, if you create what's called a tax alpha, it will actually 
help your overall net-net cash flow to your pocket over the long term. Mm-hmm. In other words, in plain English, you'll pay less ta- a lot less taxes than you think you will. Right. People are so worried about short-term or long-term t- gains. They're like, well, well, I don't want to have short-term, gain- short-term gains. Well, you know, I want long-term capital gains. How's that working out for you this year? Mm. You're, you held because you didn't want to sell because you didn't want to pay the gains. And now you're down 20%. You don't have any gains to worry about. Yeah. So you can either pay the tax and control your destiny and control your risk or be random and give it back to the market. You don't have to pay the taxes now, but you don't have the gains to pay the taxes anyway. Mm-hmm. I'd rather say, you know what? I got some gains. I'll be happy to pay a little bit of taxes. Okay? Yeah. That's, that's, what we, that's exactly what we want to do. So you've, you've got to be proactive with this. And you can't be afraid of, of wash sales, okay? All right. So it's all about- Dan, the- Dan can I- can- Yeah, sure, can go I ahead. Can I just ask you a quick question about, um, about the wash sales? So um, just hypothetically speaking, let's say one year you've got uh, $50,000 of, uh, of wash sales. And then the next year, so for that year, you can't um, deduct it. But the next year, if you have 100,000 of capital gains- can you deduct that full 50,000 of the wash sale or if, are you limited? No, if you sold, you've got to sell the positions the wash sales were created on. The wash sale is specific to that stock. So if you bought Apple, it went down and you have a loss. Then you sell that stock and you buy it back within 30 days. They say, wait a minute. You are just trying to book the loss. You're not trying to, you don't, you didn't really want to sell Apple. You're just trying to, and another way to do that, if you want the same exposure, you could buy a, 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 a small call on Apple. So you get the same effect. That's a different security, has different risk profile. So it's just, so if you buy Apple back, the stock, that particular wash sale only gets uh, netted once you sell the Apple stock again. So in your example, Michael, if you've got five different stocks that you created wash sales with because you bought five stocks back in within 30 days. So you got Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, GE, okay? 10,000 each. At the end of the next year, if you sell Apple and Amazon, those two $10,000 wash sales were used. The other third... 30 aren't because you haven't sold GE and you haven't sold the other two. You, it's specific to those stocks. You follow me? Okay. And then, yeah. And then if not, you can still deduct a certain amount from ordinary income or uh, not on a wash sale on a, wa- on a wash sale, a wash sale does not, you don't get to use the loss until you unwind the position that created the wash sale. It's specific to the position. So if it's still classified as a wash sale, it's in a little lockbox and it can't be used. Okay? Okay. Okay? Until you sell that same security back and then that, net, that second sale, gain or loss, is netted against the first, that's when you're going to get your true number. Okay? So by the way, folks, if you're, if you don't like, you're kind of a buy and holder, but you don't, you don't have any, um, um, really significant gains. So you're not trying to book losses. Mm -hmm. You may want to book at least $3,000 of losses just to offset your ordinary income because you can deduct it off your ordinary income. Here's the only reason 
you would want, this is very important, folks, listen to me. The only reason at the end of the year you won't book a material loss in a taxable account, and in an IRA it's irrelevant, but in a taxable account is because you believe that that stock is going to go up at least 20% or your long-term capital gains rate in the next 20 days or yeah. 30 days. Right. Right? Guess what? I'm not that good. I don't pick stocks that go up 20% in, in 30 days. I mean, every once in a while we'll get lucky and that happens, but that doesn't happen consistently. But I know, I know that I'm going to get to use that loss and offset gains. I know I'm going to harvest that. Yeah. Whereas the potential for a pop in that stock is not. And if I really want to do something, I can, like I said, you know, uh, sell Intel and buy AMD or do a, do a, a trade out for something that moves in tandem or buy an option on that stock. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm -hmm. But if you do this, you will pay less tax and you will have more control of your destiny. All I'm saying is there's too much. People are afraid of short-term gains and losses. They're afraid of wash sales. And they're so trying to get long-term capital gains, they end up losing 25 or 30%. So it doesn't work out that well. Look, the way that we manage money here at Revere, we look back and went, wow, that stock acted well enough that I held it for a year. But when I buy a stock, I only hold it for a year if it's acting right. As long as it acts right for that long. Right now, we're not in that kind of smooth market. We're not in what's called a primary uptrend, where the, the trend is, is, is up and it's, it's set in place. We're still trying to come off a bottom and establish a bottom bottoming process in this bear market. Are, are we there? We had a four-day follow-through, and then it kind of got a little choppy right now. Don's going to go over that in a few minutes, all right? But you don't know in advance, okay? Yeah. And you can't stand these guys that go, well, if you had done this, well, yeah, looking backward and going, well, yeah, you, everybody's 100% looking back. How do you manage in real time while it's actually happening? So anyway, that's just food. uh, That's just uh, some um, um, food to think about. Don, you've got any comments on that? Food for thought, Dan. Food for thought. Food for thought. Food for thought. thought. I'm thinking about food right now. I'm hungry. It's almost lunch. (laughs) This is a this is an important topic, and and one of the reasons that I started to discuss it with you is uh, somebody mentioned to me that they. had mild gains the prior year, but they had to pay tax on a lot more gains. And it was because they had wash sales that carried over year end. So they they weren't cleared and then they weren't sold in uh, January of the following year. So the wash sale was not allowed for the prior year, but it will be carried over uh, and be allowed to be gained in the current year. In this case, you couldn't take it for 21. Uh, to offset gains, but you will be able to take it in 22 because you finally closed the trade and, and, and by didn't the, do a, a wash sale afterwards. And by I the way, back. and by the way, that's a very, Don brings up a very good point. So if you're going into year end and you're, you got pretty big gains you're worried about, because if you don't have big gains, you can let it roll over to the next year and let that wash sale uh, come into play. Mm-hmm. But if if you need if you close out the position the second buy, right before the year end, 
and it's still a loss, in other words, it didn't come back enough to give you a gain now, mm-hmm. you may want to close out the second buy by the year end so those two wash sales net and you can use the loss. And that's what I'm talking about tax planning. Most advisors, they don't want to talk about losses because it's uncomfortable. It's, it's un- In fact, they tell you, well, you know, that's a good stock. We need to average down. It went down. We bought it. Now we need to average down. Right. Uh, no, you should have booked the loss at 5%, not let it turn into 15. Yes. Really, that's the way we do it. It's a little different. But, but the whole point is you, you, you need to actively, look, losses are part of the game. Part of investing, you're going to have losses and you're going to have gains. What we try to do at Revere is we try to control our losses and our gains to somewhat. We try to let our winners run, but you want to keep your losses small. When they interviewed all the best money managers in the world, whether it was commodities, futures, Forex, bond trader, I don't talk about buying and holding, bond trader, stock guy, hedge fund guy, no matter what their their um, methodology was, no matter what their strategy was, all the best in the world, they had one underlying theme. I always kept my losses small. I always kept my loss. If it didn't work out, I, I was out right away. I did not let it. Because see, compounding works both ways. It works on the way up, which is great, but it also works on the way down. And right. you've heard the story. If you lose 10%, you need to make 11.1 to get it back. But if you lose 25, you need to make 37 and a half. If you lose 50%, you need to make 100% before you're back even. See, they don't tell you that. And that's why it's important to control uh, losses and to have rules. Otherwise, it's just much more random. And you want to, look, investing is hard enough as it is. You want to take as much emotion out of it as you can so that you're just looking at facts. And I said this on on the last show, that technicals, price, stock price, is actually one of the best leading indicators. So even though I've got all these pedigrees, CFA and all this stuff, hoodly doodlies behind my name for, for valuation, finance, accounting, economics, modern portfolio theory, the efficient frontier, all this stuff, guess what? The technicals work better. It doesn't, because by the time the fundamentals are confirmed, the market's already up 20, 30%. Or conversely, by the time the market confirms we have big inflation and going into recession, the market's already sold off 25%. Because mm. the biggest, smartest guys running a $50 billion hedge fund saw it way before everybody, and they started moving in that direction. And by the way, even if they're wrong, they'll still move the markets in a wrong direction. You just want right, to just follow along on that. And that's why price is truth, and that's why we're going to follow very closely and make it, we follow in real time what is happening while it's happening and make adjustments accordingly. So, yes, we're pretty active, but you're not going to get 2,008 with it. You're not going to get crushed. We're not going to write it down 25, 30% as long as there's an orderly market. Yeah. I mean, look, if something like 9 11 happens, you know, in 2001, and you're not in front of your computer in the next three minutes, and then the Wall Street closes down, and then it opens up three weeks later and gaps down 20%, you can't protect against that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've even researched that. I've looked at buying index puts on the SP and Qs for clients just to have a consistent, because a stop loss won't. You'll blow through your stops and you'll get stopped out at 20% lower. Mm-hmm. The problem is those, that insurance, that hedging, costs about 3 to 4 to 5% a year, right? Well, after four or five years, adds up to a bear market correction. That adds up to 25 30%. So there's some things you got to kind of just take a little right. bit of a chance on. And by the way, 
if that did something like that happen, you can bet the Fed's going to be opening up the spigots and printing even more money than they've already printed. Yes. All right. All right. Enough said. Dan, so, are you ready? Dan, Dan yeah. I want to walk through a concrete example with numbers on wash sale, and I want you to verify that that what I'm saying is correct. Are you ready? Oh, do I need to get my calculator out? It's e No, this is easy. <laughs> I'm going to feed the numbers to you. So 2021, all, let's suppose that uh, person B, uh, the they only did, they only traded two securities in 2021, right? Okay. So the first thing they did is they bought Apple at the beginning of the year. They sold it in November and they made $10,000 in Apple, right? And it's a taxable account. So you've got plus $10,000. Then they took that money and they rolled it into Tesla and they sold Tesla for a loss of $2,000. And then the, the next week, still in November, they bought Tesla again and they got stopped out and sold it again and they lost $5,000. Then two weeks later, they bought Tesla again, got stopped out, lost $2,000. Bought it again in December, middle of December, got stopped out, lost $1,000. So all in all, four trades for Tesla, lost $1,000. Bought it again the day after Christmas. He's got to pick the most complicated example. Buying Let's and selling Let's say. This is important. <laughs> yeah. This is important. So I did, I did five trades on Tesla, lost a total of 10000 Did one trade on Apple, made 10000 Carried my Tesla position over to the next year and never sold it. And I'm still holding it. I'm saying that at the end of the year, all of those Tesla losses would not have been excluded because you carried it over year end and you're still holding it. So as of the time the tax, you never closed out the position. So those $10,000 in losses in Tesla are still sitting there because you're still holding Tesla, but you have to pay taxes on your $10,000 in Apple gains. True or false? Well, let me, let me clarify. I, I need to verify that that is in case true. In other words, it's a string of wash sales versus once you close out the second, like you, you, you bought Tesla and you sold it for a loss and then you bought it out. I mean, then you bought it back when you sold it that second time, does that complete one round trip for that wash sale and the new wash no. starts or is it continuous? No, because you buy, you, you buy again until and yeah. the way I understand it is until you go 30 days after your sale, yes. make sure that you never had another wash sale. Yes. Uh, that you don't get to take those losses until you close out the position. Yes. So, so in that case, you'd that, have a $10,000 gain in Apple. Right. So on the Apple trade, I made 10,000 on the Tesla trades. I lost 10,000 net result of my account at the end of the year is zero. But because I'm still holding that Tesla trade all the way through and haven't closed it, I'm going to have to pay taxes at the end of the year on that 10000 and those losses are not allowed. But if I sell Tesla in 2022, then I get to take that $10,000 loss the following year. Yes. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Summer again? Yes. And that's why it's important if you're pretty active to kind of look toward the end of the year and see if you do need to close out the position. Now, here's what people forget. They close out the position in December, like they sell the Tesla and Don's example, and, and on December you know, 28th to make sure that it's closed out. And then they go, ooh, that tax year's done. Okay, we're great. And then a couple weeks later, Tesla comes on their screen. It's flashing green. It looks good. And they forget and they buy it again. 
And all of a sudden, now it goes back to the last year, and it's, oh, you can't use that. you got to remember right. it goes over the tax year, and that's why it's important. That's why people make that mistake all the time. They think you start over, start fresh. for, for ta- So taxes are from year to year, January to December, but it still is based on a continuum. Right. So you've got to be careful of what you're doing. And there's, there's ways to get around that if you want. And if you're active and there's, look, when you have leading stocks, this is very important. When you have eight or 10 or 12 leading stocks that are the best of the best, especially when you're coming off a bottom, like, or maybe we are now right now, but trying to come off, they'll get these fits and starts where they'll start to rally and then they'll sell off hard. Well, you don't know if we're going for a third day, leg down or not. So you got to get out of them, but then they start to warm up. You got to get back in, right? Yes. Those are the stocks you want to own. But those stocks will sell off as hard or harder than the market in a bad market. They're great when it goes up, but they're bad when it goes down. So all I'm saying is don't be afraid of wash sales, but you do have to manage them, especially heading into the end of the year. It doesn't matter before the end of the year. you got plenty of time. Sure. It's only when you're heading into the end of the year do you really need to look and say, you know what, do I, is there something i got to do? And again, these, this is more for people that are either partially active or not very active. You know, we're so active here and we're, we're clipping losses early. Mm-hmm. So we, we're not accumulating bigger losses that we've got to quote book at the end of the year to offset gains. Right. We've already done, we've done our tax planning as we go along. Okay. So that's a little bit, little bit different there. That makes sense. We, we, we clear that up. You had a second example. Yes. What's the second example? No, that was the only example that I wanted to bring up. Okay, okay. All right. So, folks, listen, this is very complicated. If you've got any questions about that, you can certainly call me. I'd be happy to, to, to talk to you about it. It, it, is, it is confusing, but it's important to know because it could save you, you know, lots of money. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and again, remember, whatever rule is best for the IRS is the rule with regard to capital gains. Okay. Now, I did read this article. It's talking about, remember, I've been talking about the last few months about how these advisors are coming out with all these articles, these, these, these you know, financial advisor IQ and financial advisor magazine. And, yes. you know, for, they're made for people like me, not for uh, clients, right? And all these articles are coming out, how to salvage your clients and how to calm them down because you lost them 25%. And so this one was long-term bonds, how to connect with clients' children. <laughs> and so it's basically oh, it's wow. saying, look, it's a good introduction to talk to the people and, and get them and say, look, you know, interest rates have gone up a little bit. Bonds are down. It's, it's maybe a good time to, to bridge a gap and get them in some kind of interest-bearing, longer-term thing. And I'm thinking, of, I'm scratching myself, thinking to myself, you know, with modern portfolio theory and all the thing, they talk about your time horizon for a young kid, aren't you wanting growth stocks? Yeah. I mean, what happened to growth stocks? Why is it long bonds for the year? Does that mean old people need growth stocks now? Suppose, they I probably do now if they lost 20, 30% in their bonds. Gosh. But but in any event, I just now there are a couple good points in this article about connecting with the family, and it is a multi generational well, sure. planning. You want to plan first, you want to plan for the people's retirements mm-hmm. and then their kids' college funding. And then how they're going to distribute their assets when they go meet their maker. I got all that. But this is more of an article about how to really connect and, 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 and calm the client down or, or bond with them. And their... Here's an idea. Don't sit there and buy and hold and lose 30% of their money and then have to go 
have this uncomfortable, uncomfortable <laughs> conversation with them. I don't know where I got that, but anyway. I just um, want to clarify, when you, you said you were scratching yourself, you meant scratching your head. Scratching my head. Didn't I say right. scratching my head? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. It sounds like my wife. All right. Now, all right. All right. Uh, now I want to talk about, well, let's do the 401k increases first. Cause the, the scary stays in the markets will lead right into the money management side, the red meat for the stock nerds. Sure. All right. So the government and all their Magnanimity, magnanimity, is that a word? Mag, magnanimity, that's magnanimity. a hard word. Magnanimity. Mag, okay, there you go. Gosh. Say that again, Michael. Magnanimity. Magnanimity. Wow, wow. say that. Say that fast just three big, times. Big Forget word. five. Yeah. Anyway, so the they act, just. The act of being magnanimous. Yes. There you go. You're trying to get at. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So Congress was very magnanimous. That's a lot easier. Um, uh, this year to us, and, and because they've uh, caused massive inflation, and and with the help of the Fed, they've increased our 401k limits. So now, as an employee, I can defer up to $22,500 in my 401k, or Roth 401k, if they offer that, rather than just $20,500. So they increased it to, to uh, by $2,000. Now, if you're an old man like me and Don, then you it goes up to $30,000 total because they have a catch-up provision of seventy five hundred dollars, so they increase that a little bit. So if you're over fifty, you can put in thirty grand for your for your four hundred one k. If you're if you're um, um, not, then it's twenty. If you're under fifty, it's twenty two five. And they're so magnanimous for IRAs. They took you up five hundred bucks. So you could do six thousand with an IRA. Well, now you can do sixty five hundred. That'll meet your retirement goals. That million dollar pot of gold at the end of the end yeah. of the year. And, and so if you got a 401k and you work for an employer and they offer a 401k, good for you. If you're self-employed and you don't have a retirement plan, call me. We can set one up for you so you can actually put more than 6000 in. And, you're, and there are catch-up provisions for um, over 52, but it's only 1000 or 1500 bucks. It's not, not like the 401ks. So having a 401k or SEP or some type of more complicated plan, uh, then, 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 uh, Don, turn off that phone. Then, then, um, then, then you could do that. All right. So now, the scariest days in the market. Yes. Right. It's not today. The market's up pretty big today. How appropriate for uh, last Halloween I checked. Show, right? Yeah, it is. Yes, the scary. Oh, and some of these are Black Monday and Black Tuesday. Ooh. Okay. Would it surprise you? These are the t- scariest thirteen days. Okay, two are during the COVID bear, March of 2020. Three are during the economic crisis, the financial crisis of 2008. Six are during the Great Depression. That makes sense. Okay. And two are during the crash of 87, which only lasted a couple months. Okay. Did anybody realize what was missing in there? I I thought that at least one or two days would be in there. COVID? Pandemic? The COVID was in there. Oh, okay. Economic crisis. Bueller, Bueller, anybody? Bueller, Michael, yeah, anybody? Ted. What big? 29 crash, 87 crash. 87 crash. 29, 87, yeah. COVID bear in 2008. What's missing? The tech wreck. Oh. 2000. There was no Gee, days yeah. in 2000 that, that quite made that, that deal. Now, 
of the top 10, you had the, the, the very top one was the crash of 87, the one-day crash. The Great Depression was the second biggest day, the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth. COVID bear was three and six, and the economic crisis was eight and nine. So anyway, I'm not going to go through all that, but here's the thing. So the crash, the Black Monday of 1987, down 20% in one day. Oof. Now, yeah, there were some big blowups. There were some, there were some problems in the system. <laughs> they, <laughs> they said we had some issues. So, and by the way, that's what prompted putting in the curbs and the trading speed bumps. So then it was down a certain percent. And don't quote me. Don may know this. I think it's 3% or something. If it goes, if it goes down a certain amount, or maybe it's 5%, within a couple hours, they go, okay, we're going to put on the brakes. We're going to turn the market off for an, an hour or two hours. They stop trading, right? Mm. Then they reopen it up. And usually that causes even more panic sometimes. And if it does it again, they may stop trading for the whole day. Okay. So they may, so after 1987, October 19th to 1987, some of these days could have actually been a little bit bigger, but they just got turned off. That's interesting to note. So the very biggest day was October 19th, 1987. Then you had Black Monday. That was Black Monday also, but Black Monday of October 28th, 1929. That's the most famous stock market day everybody knows. That was down 12.3%. Okay? COVID was number three, down 11.9, basically 12%. Okay? And then they're, and then they're uh, uh, all the rest going down to about 8%. They're different days. Here's the point I want to make. These all happen, and you started getting some deterioration and some signs for most of these, okay? Mm -hmm. The one that was probably a little bit harder that a lot of people got caught with was the 1987 Black Monday. But a lot of these, uh, and even though, even then some people, you know, say, look, there are a couple things that were starting to pop up a few weeks prior, but you're starting to see weakness underneath the hood and technicals starting to break down. And that's especially true with these newer, the more recent days, because you have better data. It's harder to go back and pull all that data from 1929, 1933, whatever. And it's just not as robust. But all the data for the last 30 years is all in there pretty good. So you can really do studies and look at that stuff. But but my point is, there's ways to avoid some of that pain. So like in COVID, during the COVID bear, during, uh, 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 where is that? It is down... On March 12th, 2020, down 9.5. And on March 16th, down 11.8. Now, Don, during the COVID, we were already moving to cash up. So we got hit a little bit on March 12th, but we still had uh, a a decent amount of cash. By the 16th, I think we were out. I don't think we got caught any of that 11%. Right? No, and those those all uh, take place below the 200-day moving average, too, Dan. Yes, absolutely. As you mentioned. So when you so what Don is saying is when you're below the 200-day moving average, all bear markets occur below that, and that makes sense because it starts deteriorating, and so you start going below the moving averages, and if selling starts accelerating, that's when you got to pay attention. So just by the virtue of being under the 200-day moving average, our antenna are up and we're at high alert, and we're raising more cash. We we're not fully invested when we're under the 200-day. So right there, you're taking some 
quote, beta or volatility off the table. You're getting more defensive. And you can still try to pick individual stocks or still do stuff. And as, and when you look at other stuff, you may even go more in cash. It really depends on what's going on. So why don't you elaborate a little bit on that? Go over a few of the uh, facts that, that, you know, about, about how you recognize when you need to get defensive. How will you know? Well, I, I go over it every night in the when I do the little three four minute overview. Uh, you can show the charts, Zach. Got it. I give a little overview of exactly how we manage things, and it starts with this chart that you're looking at right now, and the three moving averages. The short term, that's the green line, the 21 day exponential moving average. The red line is the medium term 50 day moving average. The black line is the all important 200 day moving average. When you're trending above all three and they're stacked appropriately and they're trending higher, we have as much money in the market as we are comfortable doing for clients. If things start rolling over and going lower, our stops will take us out of the market. Uh, if it's going looking like uh, it may be topish, there will be fewer and fewer opportunities to buy into the market. And if it looks like we're really going to roll over and go lower, the slopes of the lines on the green line, the 21, and the red line, the 50, will start to roll over. Now we're really getting defensive. And if you break below the black line, this is where all of these key big losses occur. Under the All these bear markets happen under the 200-day moving average. Typically, from high to the break of the 200 is usually about uh, 9% to uh, 13%. On average, the average is 12%. So if you lose 12% before you get out of the market, that's pretty easy to come back from. It's when these big losses start taking chunks out of your portfolio and you're getting close to retirement uh, and you had a nest egg and you're planning on drawing a certain percent out of it uh, every month and all of a sudden your nest egg is cut in half. This is why we make uh, risk management our first priority. And when the market writes itself and gets bullish, we'll the, the, those returns will take care of themselves and you're uh, compounding from a much higher asset base because you didn't take these big losses. So that's why we're so uh, defensive when you get under the black line. Um, we missed this big whoosh down. We participated a little bit in this move back up because we have short-term tactical uh, changes that we'll make to get exposure. We got had added exposure here with this big shakeout. Uh, and we added when we got back above the 21-day moving average, and now we're seeing if we close above the 50-day moving average, we, we've added a little bit more today. So it's all about where we are relative to these uh, three time frames, how the slopes of the lines are aligned, and where they are relative to each other. Uh, and as I said, when you get this situation right here, back in October, November of 2021, everything was lined up fine and we're in the market. And little by little, our stops take us out. And when you're below the 200-day, we are in maximum capital preservation mode. Again, that doesn't mean that we're waiting to get back above this black line. Uh, as we have our short-term and our medium-term uh, indicators go through those lines, we'll, we'll put, uh, put some money back into the market with tight stops in case it doesn't work out. But um, this, this last shakeout here, which... Uh, ironically, was on really bad CPI data. It just washed everybody out down to 3,500 on the S&P, totally reversed. So this is a case of um, 
The news is always the worst at the bottom. I'm not calling a bottom here, but I'm saying we've continued to rally off that bottom despite the fact that we haven't been getting uh, great news from the inflation standpoint or uh, any easing indications from the Fed. We might get that next week. Uh, we did have some leaks come out by the by the Wall Street Journal saying that they may consider a pause after this next interest rate rise next week. Uh, but stocks have been accumulated uh, for the over the last two weeks since we had that really big shakeout uh, on bad CPI data. The the PCE inflation data that came out this morning was uh, not worse than expected. It was kind of in line, uh, and the market's taken off to the upside on that. So we're looking, the market will look six months down the road. We may have two recessionary quarters while the market's going higher, but the market is always forward-looking six to nine months. So uh, just because the fundamental information is bad at the bottom uh, doesn't mean that you have to wait to participate in a market rally. Well, that's a great point. And here's the other point. The market, not only will the market rally, before the news of improvement, see, every, I, I talk to people all the time. Well, I'm just waiting till the market improves before I want to get back in. By the time you recognize that in the fundamentals, the market's up 20, 25%, and Bob's your uncle, right? Con- likewise, or conversely, the market will start rolling over before the new, the inflation news and before the uh, recession news comes out. Remember, last. Uh, uh, the the fourth, third and fourth quarter last year, commodities really started heating up. Remember, lumber went on this meteoric rise. And then all of a sudden, the inflation was confirmed and it started coming out. And everybody started talking about commodities and look how much they've run. And a lot of retail investors started jumping in. And you had this huge reversal and, and lumber and stuff sold off hard. So the, mar- the technicals, the price, price is truth. Price is one of the best leading indicators out there. And I said this last week, look, I've got these designations and all these things behind my name about how to do valuation and finance and portfolio management, right? But really, the technicals help me more than the fundamentals because the fundamentals may be, it may be a while before the market recognizes or saying, yeah, that's the same thing with value investing. It may take two or three years before people recognize, yeah, that is a good value. You were right. We would rather wait and get a little bit of confirmation and strong volume and buying power, even if we buy it three or four or 5% higher. Right. Okay. Cause it still could go you may end up getting it 15% cheaper because it got even more valuable, right? It went down even further. So you never know how far the market's going to go down and you never know how far it's going to rally and trying to impose your belief system on it only gets you in trouble. It only gets me in trouble. And we say this all the time, the market doesn't care about Don or what Don thinks, and it doesn't care what I think. It's going to do what it's going to do. So while your time horizon is important, you've got to dovetail your time horizon with the markets. Perfect example. Bonds. They're saying if you're 70, you ought to own 70% bonds and only 30% stocks. Never mind that we're in like the late 70s period with high inflation. And bonds are getting obliterated because inflation is like kryptonite to bonds. And so all these people have lost 30% of their money. And they were thinking that it was, you know, bonds were super safe and not like tech stocks. They're acting acting like tech. Right. Right. And so that's why it's very important. Um, Anyway, so I can't impress upon you how much rules make your life 
so much easier. By the way, when it's time to do something, it's not going to feel right. When it's time to get in off a of bottom, the last thing you're going to think about doing is, God, you want me to go buy some stocks? God, they gotten killed. Look at that. You know, and that's going to be the time. By the way, likewise, the time to sell is when everybody's bragging at cocktail parties how much money they made. Okay. Now you got to have rules for that because it could go up another 15, 20%. You got to let it roll over a little bit and show that it's actually getting weaker and it's breaking down. And that's when you sell. So you're never going to tie the way that we do it. You never tie it. We're never going to time the top and we're never going to time the bottom, except maybe just get lucky once or twice occasionally. We always want to show firm, firming up, but we're not going to guess the bottom. And likewise, we want to see something start to roll over and pull back before we say it's time to harvest profits. Mm. Okay. And you always keep a tight leash on any newly established positions because you'll know within three weeks or so whether it's going to work out or not. In fact, a lot of the stuff, most of the stocks that we buy and we book small losses on, they're sold within a week, I mean, or two weeks. They immediately, they, they don't do what we think we're do, they're going to do. And then the ones that work out, they work out and they do fine. Now, if I knew which ones were going to work out in advance, like with hindsight, I would just buy those, right? But we don't know that. And so that's why it's very important to have rules. All right. So, we, so one last thing when we're talking about money management, because, you know, interest rates have not been they've been very low, historic lows for a long time. And now the Fed is aggressively raising rates and the yield curve is inverted, which also is a sign of recession, but the yield curve is inverted and you can actually get literally three, 4% in short-term T-bills, treasury bills. I'm talking three, four, five, six, seven months. I'm not talking about two or three years. And the problem is they're crowding out CDs for company, you know, raising money, commercial paper, you know, short-term borrowing from companies to operate their businesses, they're starting to have to oper- ask for more, pay you more to attract money. Because why am I going to invest in ABC company when I can invest in a treasury bill that they have a printing press so you know it's not going bankrupt and it's a higher interest rate? Point being, there's going to be unintended consequences, but the way we're managing money now, because the money market, even though it's paying a little bit more, those money markets are real slow to pay you that extra interest they're making, right? Just like at the gas pump, gas prices go up, they immediately raise the price. Gas prices go down, it, they're a little slow to get out there and change a sign, right? Takes about a week. So with these, so what we're doing at Revere is we're actually buying four-week short-term T-bills and buying a 5% each week, okay? So we're rolling... 15% of the portfolio, we're rolling it every week. And as we, to pump up the money market, in fact, we may be able to, by the end of the year, maybe even absorb the management fee, but it's all about the total return. So for that idle cat, now, if we hit a primary uptrend and really go gangbusters, like after COVID, when things really start looking like we want to get fully invested, the next time that roll comes up, I just don't roll it. And we got that extra cash. Mm. So it's one way to do that. And, and it actually has led me because I have talked to people that actually are scared and they've just got money in, a, in a, seat, a savings account at the bank. Folks, if you're doing that, you can roll treasury bills and make three, four percent, four and a half if you're willing to go out a year. So don't just let your idle cash sit there. You need to make it work for you. If you got any questions on that, 
uh, you can call me, but that's a piece of yeah, the I want to interject something. The, the, key, the key issue with this is that we're buying individual T-bills because we've been saying all year, buying bonds is a loser's game in a rising interest rate market because the, the price of the bond goes down and that's what values the bond ETF or the bond mutual fund. Right. So you're losing money on the value while the yield's going up. What we're doing is buying zero coupon T-bills, which means they don't pay out interest. The interest is calculated by the discount to the price that you pay for them. So in, in, instead of $100, if you buy it, you pay 97 for it, your yield is about 3%. And then you just hold that 97 until it matures. That's how you get your 3%. And, and, and that's a great point. I want to bring something up. So when he says 97 we do that in the in the in the in our world. It's shorthand. Bonds are traded in thousand dollar par increments. So when Don says nine ninety seven, that means nine hundred and seventy dollars a bond. Yeah. Just multiply it by just add a zero to it. So he buys it at nine hundred and seventy, pays nine seventy for it. It matures at a thousand. That's that three percent he's talking about. Also, because it's very short term, it's three months or two months or whatever. It it. It's not affected by rising interest rates. It's it's so the longer you go out, the further out maturity you go out, the more you're affected by prices and interest rates. In other words, a bond portfolio that has a 15 year duration or 15 a duration of 15, that's not quite the same as maturity uh, of 15 years, but it's very close. Maturity and duration. There's a little. It's a little bit more sophisticated formula. But it basically shows you how much that bond portfolio will go down with 1% raise in interest rates. So if it's got a duration of 10, that means for one interest rate move up, that bond portfolio is going down 10%. And that's going to be the case for like a 20 or 30 year bond portfolio. With a with a two or three year bond portfolio, it's only going to go down three or four. It's not going to go down that much, mm. right? A short six months or left, it's not even going to make a blip. It's not going to matter. So that's why it's important, and especially when these for these for these portfolio managers. Now we saw it breaking down, and we just moved to cash, and we just didn't do any bonds. But if you see that we're having inflation, and you see that rising interest rates, because that also makes bond prices go down, it's a double whammy. Your 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 advisor should go you very short in duration. Move you from 20-year bonds to maybe three or two or five, or just get out of them altogether. That, that's what you're paying an advisor for, not to just sit there in a pie chart and just say, just stay the course. I can show you how to do that for free. I mean, you don't need to pay an advisor to do that. Um, but any, one more thing that Don mentioned, the individual bonds is important because in a mutual fund, in a bond mutual fund or a bond ETF, there is no maturity date. Let me repeat that. There is no maturity date. You're buying into a pool of bonds that they continually roll over. Why is that important? Because that's why all these bond funds never can even match their index. Because think of interest rates as like a clock. 12 o'clock's high, 6 is low. When bonds start coming down, when interest rates start to drop, bond prices go up in value. So when they hit the bottom, so at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, when interest rates are high, they're all selling at a discount and every, blood's running in the streets. That's really when you want to be buying bonds. When interest rates start to drop again, the Fed eases, bonds will start going up in price 
and you get big, you get capital gains. They're selling at a premium. It's really like the interest rate being paid in, in advance. However, at the bottom of the cycle, all these bond portfolios have made up or making money because they have unrealized gains in the price of these bonds. So you get a whole bunch of people piling in performance chasing and going, look what happened the last two years. I got to go buy this bond mutual fund. They go buy the bond mutual fund, then interest rates start to go up. The bond prices start to go down and they lose money. People start freaking out. They start asking for their money back. The mutual funds get net redemptions at just the time they should be buying bonds, not selling them. Now they're selling at a discount, but he's got to sell them more because he's got to big give people whatever's left of their money back. So by the structure of the bond mutual fund, they have structural problems of investor behavior that makes them a bad investment vehicle. So there's a couple different reasons you don't want to use bond mutual funds. And if you're going to do bond ETFs, you need to actively manage them and trade them. They're not really made to hold. If you're going to hold them, you should do the individual bonds. Okay, that's very important. And by the way, bonds are as complicated as stocks. And people don't think realize that. They don't think that there's a lot of things that go in there. Don talked about duration, which is like maturity. There's also a thing called convexity, which gets even more confusing. All that means is the price is not linear with interest rates. So one, one point interest rate up, the bond loses 10%, right? Remember I said that? Yeah. Well, the next interest rate up, it may only lose 8%. The rate, you've already had the big losses. Now the rate of losses slows down. Just like the rate of gains, when interest rates first drop, the bonds pop in value. As, as rates continue to drop, they go up, but at a, at a slowing rate. They don't go up as fast. And so there's two different calculations you got to figure out to see what you think the effect is going to have on your bond portfolio. But I'll tell you, it doesn't take a genius at the beginning, near the beginning of this year to realize with the inflation numbers coming out and the Fed needing having to raise interest rates that you need to just clear the decks on your bonds. In other words, when in doubt, sell it. Yeah. Just get rid of it. It's not worth the risk. It's way too high of a risk. All right. Got that out of the way. Any is that good, Don? Anything else? I think we I think we covered that, that pretty that's well. That's good. I'm worried about us. Uh, are we running too long before uh, the individual segments? Uh, we're, no, we're, are you all right on time? Uh, we, are, we are running pretty long. We can move through them. All right, all right, Mike. Uh, Michael Ramos is going to talk about REITs and the REIT sector. Michael, you're up, man. All right. So yeah, I'll do this. Um, this, this one will be pretty quick. Um, so REITs, um, they stand, it's an acronym, it stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And what REITs are is that they're companies that own and uh, they typically operate um, uh, income producing real estate. So within REITs, you've got many different kinds, many different sectors. You've got uh, like office REITs, industrial, residential, um, storage, infrastructure, data center. Anyway, the, the list goes on. There, there's all sorts of different REITs. And uh, specifically, ones I wanted to uh, talk about that, that are interesting to me are uh, the um, apartment residential REITs. And then um, there's also an interesting one, and I believe it's the only publicly uh, listed REIT that does this. It's the um, it's it's a medical marijuana REIT. So they own a lot of the uh, the warehouses where where uh, medical marijuana is grown, and uh, it's um, as and we, we've seen news now of uh, legalization and um, 
federal legislation coming out that um, it may, it seems as though it's, it's on the agenda to uh, continue this legalization process federally. So if that's the case, um, it could be, could be a booming sector uh, going forward because you're not as exposed to the individual companies. You, you're just, uh, it's, it's almost a safer um, dividend paying uh, income way to invest in, in the uh, marijuana space. Um, so that's interesting. And um, I guess the, the, I'll start with the, um, the, the apartment REITs. Um, so my thesis behind that, the, the, um, what I'm thinking is the apartment sector should benefit from, uh, from higher uh, mortgage rates um, because we've seen now a slowdown in housing. Um, there's less buyers that are, the affordability is at all time lows. There's less buyers in, um, in the housing market so if people that would otherwise be buyers of, of homes can't afford them, um, and this isn't something new, I mean, affordability has been super low. So apartments, um, that's kind of their, their only choice. They're going to have to continue renting. And um, apartments have been growing. Um, the, the amount of people living in apartments is growing. So um, if you look at, um, yeah, just... Um, in terms of uh, uh, the, the the first one, actually, um, I'll, I'll just go with the names. Uh, first one I'm looking at is AVB, and if you look at the charts, um, they're not good. But I mean, for this kind of thing, it doesn't really go with our strategy. But if you, if there's a fundamental reason behind it, maybe it's better if you're uh, more long term. Um, just in, in terms of the valuations and where they're trading at these levels, um, it could be something interesting to look at. I'm not saying go ahead and buy it today. But maybe in the future, um, keep an eye on it. And if it starts to turn back up and uh, some money starts flowing into the sector, um, valuations are attractive and the thesis um, kind of makes sense. Another one is MAA. And um, these are both apartment REITs. So they own um, and develop apartment uh, communities and, and buildings. Um, so these are two of the, um, the most liquid that, that I've been able to find. Um, and then going to the marijuana REITs, um, IIPR is um, the, the marijuana REIT. And um, interesting chart there. It, it, it looks as though it's forming that stage one base. And um, you've got some big volume um, a couple of days ago on uh, like that, that news of uh, federal legalization. The weekly chart, um, it's kind of, it was rejecting at that 10 week moving average. Now it's above, it's got, um, several weeks there of accumulation and the the earnings um, are solid they've been raising their dividend uh, so it could it, it's uh it, I, I remember when it first ipo'd and it did extremely well it, it ipo'd at around 30 or even 18 actually and it ran um to to 300 um and now it's back at 100 so it could be could be an interesting opportunity um going forward as well and then um the last one um, I'll talk about a little different is uh, Vici uh, Properties, V-I-C-I. And that chart is, is definitely the best of um, all the REITs. And they're a uh, casino, they, they own and operate um, casino real estate. So they've got um, like Caesars and um, some MGM properties. And, and that's um, uh, one of the few REITs that um, in this high interest rate environment has been performing well. and um, could, could continue to do well as well. So, um, so yeah, those are the uh, four REITs I'm looking at. And um, also something not REITs, but, but also related is, um, so if you look at housing prices, I mean, affordability is super low and 
a big reason for that, um, like in just Freddie Mac estimated that the uh, the country is is uh, 3.8 million housing units short of what it needs. So for a while, really since 08, there's been a, a structural lack of supply in the housing market, and that's uh, putting upward pressure on on prices. So really, the only way to get out of this, unless you got um, a, a massive uh, decrease in the population, the portion of the population that owns homes and their vacancies and they want to get rid of them. Um, really the only way through it with the lack of supply is for the home builders to um, to build more. And looking at the home builders, um, DHI, for example, um, on earnings um, has now gapped up above certain areas and, and is starting to, um, to get strength. It's back above the 200-day moving average. If you look on the weekly chart, um, it, it looks more interesting. Uh, get a little more long-term perspective. Um, DHI um, looks looks like there, there's money starting to flow back into that sector. Um, LEN is another one. Um, XHB is the, um, the home builder ETF. Um, and it, it would just make sense. Um, it, I wouldn't be surprised that, that going forward um, in terms of of uh, legislation and um, and government support, um, that there there will be some sort of incentives for these home builders to uh, construct more because even like the Fed raising interest rates uh, may slow down the housing market, but it's not going to fix a, a lack of supply. It could actually make the problems worse in terms in terms of affordability um, for people to own homes. So there, there's going to have to be more construction. There's really no way around that so whether whether these home builders are incentivized somehow um we'll, we'll see how that how that manifests but um just from a yeah for, from from a logical um sort of fundamental basis um home builders need to need to get to work otherwise we've got some big problems all right Mike. Yeah, that, that's uh that's my segment all right. Well, listen, listen, I, listen, I appreciate it. And folks think about that. So a couple of those home builders uh, actually look like they're firming up and a couple of those REITs. And that's the last thing I would think of fundamentally because inflation, the raising rates is hurting more people able to qualify for mortgages and prices are starting to come down on home prices. And so if you're a buyer, it seems like you would wait, you would pause and say, you know what, I might be able to get it cheaper next month, you know? And so if you, if you, so that's why you got to follow the charts. The charts are going to be a true, because price is truth. So you don't want to argue with the, uh, with the charts. Me personally, I'm bearish in my mind. I think that housing is in trouble. Residential housing, not the apartments. I agree with him on the apartments. We've got a shortage and the apartment reads fundamentally. That's makes perfect sense in my mind, but in my, my mind, my simple mind, I think residential is in trouble. But again, the charts are going to trump whatever I say. They're going to overrule whatever I think. Right. All right. Thanks, uh, Michael. Appreciate it. All right, Ted. Now we're going to Ted and one of his, he's going to bring up one of the one of his favorite mentors that he follows. Ted? Yep. So I want to talk about this man by the name of Larry Height. And so he's a marker wizard featured in the first Jack Schwager Market Wizard book. And we talk about price is truth at Revere. We talk about trend following, how Don talks about the three moving averages. And Larry Height is the epitome of a trend follower. And I actually recommended this book 
to Don, and he's really liked it. And if you want, um, so just a little bit about his background and his like story. He's blind in one eye. He's half blind in the other eye, and he's dyslexic. So he he pretty much everything when he was a child in school, in sports. He's bullied. He said he had depression, and at at points he wanted to commit suicide. And overall, he's suffered a lot of loss and failures during childhood and his teenage years. Um, and he states that his early failures forced him to become more comfortable with failure, and more important, and that was like part of his foundation of success. And he continues to say that we have many losses in trading, but we must be able to take those without emotion and move on. And the vital thing is to take small losses. So a key to his success was that he never gave up. He's always persistent. And not only was it inspiration for people, his, his wizard, um, he was a market wizard in, in the space. And he was the first hedge fund manager to raise a billion dollars. And that's just pretty remarkable to me. And so now I'm going to just share a few key lessons and key points. And if you guys want to chime in, like with any ideas, because like a lot, a lot of his principles really spark thoughts, um, you may. And so I'll go over his key rules first. And the number one rule is use the worst case scenario as your baseline. And he talks about never risking more than you can afford to lose. And so I know at Revere, Don always backs into like the maximum loss. He, he, he knows when he's going to get out and he position sizes based on that. Um, his second rule is only risk a very small percentage of equity on a single trade. And one of his great quotes is, if you don't bet, you cannot win. But if you lose all your chips, you cannot bet. So that's where- <laughs> It's classic. Yeah, so that's where risk management really comes in play because if you lose everything, you when, once the bull market starts, you have nothing to bet with and you're just, just sitting there seeing everyone make money. Um, and the third one is spread your bets. So we talk about, we don't want to over diversify, but we do want to diversify a little bit. We don't want to put our whole account or all of our funds in one bet, because if that doesn't work out, then we're underwater and we're, we're done. Um, and the fourth one is stick with the plan. And that, that basically is like, you plan out your trades and you don't, you don't like let your emotions in the middle of the trade govern your decisions. And if you guys have any like points or thoughts about his key rules. Well, um, well I'd like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to, I, I'd like, I'd like to jump on one point real quick is, is he, you may, he made the comment, like I was saying earlier that he kept his losses small. But when mm -hmm. I was talking about the trading a little while ago, the other things that all these good traders do, all these good investors that are very, very successful, see people get emotional and they, they, they count their win-loss records and they think they need to win 80% of the time and lose only 20. And you can, a lot of these guys, they actually only win 30 or 40% of the time and lose 60 or 70, but they have very, very small losses on their losses. And then on their gains, they'll have some small gains, but then they'll have a couple that just run and, 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 and go up very nicely. And those few trades are the lion's share of their gains, but they control the downside the whole time. So don't get in your head that if you're 50, 50 on your win loss, that you're, you're spinning your wheels and you're not going anywhere. You can have a 50, 50 win loss record and still be up 20, 25, 30% for the year. People don't realize that. Anyway, go ahead, Don. One of the key, uh, areas in that book he he went broke once but it wasn't his fault 
he had a partner and Larry Height would run the systems and it would spit out the trades. He would give the trades to the partner. While Volker, Volker was raising interest rates, his partner didn't take one of the trades because he thought, and there's that key word, think. You know, I break out into hives when people start talking about think. Uh, he thought Volker would stop raising rates, so he didn't take this trade and he covered up the trade. And then all of a sudden it went so bad in that direction that he finally had to meet with Larry and Larry's investors and explain to him that he didn't take this trade. And basically they were down more than the company was worth. So they had to liquidate everything and he essentially had to completely start over uh, and he owed a bunch of money too. So his next try at his uh, company, everything was systematically generated. He did not rely on humans to input the trades. And that was the big thing with his, uh, his resurrection that he needed, that he wanted to absolutely 100% take the human element out of it. Another part is when he was, uh, he, he developed, and, and this kind of was the key in it. I was reading this at the same time that Dan started talking about T-bills. Uh, and also a client mentioned to us how he had been buying some T-bills. And um, one of Larry's products was something called the Mint Guaranteed Fund. As soon as I saw him calling something the Guaranteed Fund, I, before I even read the details about it, I was like, how could he call that guaranteed? Well, what he did was he took 60% of the investor's money and he invested it in five-year uh, bonds, five-year zero-coupon bonds, so that at the end of five years, they got their guaranteed principal amount back, and then he took the other 40% and invested it in his system. So his pitch to the clients was, even if we completely go broke on all of the trades, you're going to get your money back at the end of five years, guaranteed, because he put it in, uh, in interest rate T-bills. Obviously, interest rates were high enough then that he could be able to pull this off. But uh, I thought that he, he was always thinking out of the box and coming up with new ways to uh, make money. And really, his only goal in life was to be rich. At one point, he heard one of his college professors talking about, in a mocking way, about how commodities traders were trading with massive amounts of leverage. And he thought, I mean, I don't have to put up uh, my own money. Well, all I have to do is develop a system that's going to take advantage of the leverage, lose small so that I never go out, and uh, use the leverage to make outsized gains. And he built his entire career off of that one premise that he just a throwaway line that he heard uh, a professor in college say derisively talking about commodities traders. So uh, really an incredible book. I, I just finished it this week. I'm the guy, I take a long time reading books. I'm the guy sitting there with a the highlighter. <laughs> highlight uh, everything. Notes, high, highlighting things. And uh, it was really an enjoyable book, an enjoyable story. And I highly recommend this book to anybody that uh, is looking for. The best reads to me are when there's a story behind uh, not just a pure academic book, those can get a little bit dry, but when there's a good story to the lesson and there's financial lessons in there. Um, and he also talks about, you know, people, uh, buy and holders have insulted us on Twitter for our three, uh, our three moving averages that we use, saying it's rudimentary, there's no way you can use it. Those are the same moving averages that Larry Height uses in the majority of his system. <laughs> so, yep. so stick that where the yeah. sun don't shine. Uh, and what, Don just, and what Don just said, talked about um, how Larry Hyde guaranteed investors' money back. 
that is what he calls asymmetrical leverage. And this is where I want to introduce another really like amazing concept that he talked about in his book. And that's the difference between a good bet versus a bad bet and then a winning bet versus a losing bet. So how he defines a good bet is that that the, like the expected outcome is far greater than your expected loss or the expected win is far greater than your expected loss. And then a bad bet is your expected loss is far greater than your expected win. And then a winning bet is just like random and there's a lot of entropy involved. So like you could, you could make a bad bet, but it could turn into a winning bet. And so he said, he talks about that. You have to make sure that you don't mistaken a winning bet for a good bet. And I, I just thought that was amazing because, um, we're all we're always trying to think in probabilities and we want to make good bets and not not just think that a winning bet is a good bet ted that's absolutely right there's an old adage on wall street don't confuse genius with a bull market so in a good market you get all these people that think they're doing really really well and they're basically just riding up all boats float you separate the professionals in the ugly markets that's where you can tell people that minimize your drawdowns and they're not losing you 25%, you're going to go down some, but single digit or something. That's where you tell, uh, separate the, uh, the, the people that, that, that really keep a close eye versus people that are, that are uh, uh, just, just random. What was the name of that book? The Rule by the Larry. Rule. The Rule. And are we running out of time? Because there's one more section that I would like to share as well. And make it quick. Okay, so... Also, like how great thinkers think is, is really fascinating to me. So like an amateur and a beginner would think about how do I make money in the markets? But Larry Height thinks about how he can lose money. And so instead of a section saying like X amount of ways to make money, he, he has a section called eight ways to lose money. And I'll just quickly list like, a, like the, the eight. And the first one is be a genius. And he talks about how like the smartest people in the world, like Ivy League education people with all the degrees and certifications tend to hang on to their losses because they refuse to admit that they're wrong because they've never really been wrong in their life. They're probably all straight A students um, who've gotten pretty much everything they could get in their academic life. And so one of his quotes related to that is, I don't look at the market and tell it what to do. I let the market tell me what to do. So Don and Dan on this podcast has emphasized that so many times. Absolutely. Um, the, second, yep, the second way he talks about losing money is assuming the market owes you money. and to me, that was surprising. Like, I'm not sure who thinks the market owes the money, but I, I, I guess there's a story in money. Um, the third one is ignore the trend, and which is why we're trend followers. We have to be adaptable. And here's a quote. He says, it's not the fastest, the strongest, not even the most intelligent who survive. It's the one who's most adaptable because if you, you've got to live where it's all over. And the fourth one, failure to get out of a bad position, a loss can become a bigger loss. And the rule, like the title of his book, the rule is basically cut your, your losses short and let your profits run. And that was like, that sounds super simple, but once you truly realize like what that quote means, it, it's pretty big in trading and, and investing. Um, the fifth one is hang on when you're losing. And he talks about the first loss is your best loss. And we always wanna know when we get out before we enter a trade. The sixth one, is be a winner. And he talks about one of his friends who was super spoiled, who went to like an Ivy League school, never knew how to take a loss. And when he, when he began trading, he just ended up losing everything because he couldn't be, he like couldn't, he couldn't understand, like he couldn't be a loser. He couldn't take a loss, and which is why he ended up losing everything. And then the seventh one is 
um, you get confused at what your objective is. And the eighth one is be arrogant. And you know that the market humbles everyone who's arrogant. Uh, no, absolutely. And so we always say at Revere, it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. And by the way, folks, I did not know that Ted was going to bring that up about keeping losses small. When I did the thing earlier where I was telling you all the best traders in the world and all the different genres, whether it's bonds or stocks or commodities, their underlying theme, no matter how their system works, is I kept my losses small. But folks, if you've got an advisor that's letting you have, st- you've got losses in there that are 20, 25, 30, 35% down, you might want to get a second opinion. Seriously. Here's the thing. Leading stocks, the best of the best stocks, fall on average 72% from their high. So they lead on the way up. What they forget to tell you is they also lead on the way down. Okay? There are the stocks you want to own. You just got to have a system to know when to own them and when to stay away. When the market's going up, 75 to 80% of all stocks go up. And when the market goes down, 75%, uh, 80% of all stocks go down. So the first thing you got to do is identify where we are in the trend. Are we an uptrend, downtrend, bottoming process, topping process, moving sideways, trying to find a, a way? And there's actually mathematical probabilities and, and ways to tell. It, nothing's for certain. It's a market and anything can happen. But you can put the probabilities in your favor. And then if they go against you, you don't stay wrong. You change, you adapt. The whole show, I guess, was about adaptation. How do you adapt? Okay? Folks, listen, Don's going to be doing his 21 over 21 tonight. You definitely want to watch that. It's going to be a recap of this week and what happened this week and what we're going to be looking forward to going into next week. And listen, if you follow, if you just go to revereasset.com in the upper right-hand corner, there's a subscribe button. You can put in your name and your email address. And you'll be on our email. You'll get our daily market insight video every night that the market is open. And you'll get this podcast delivered into your inbox Saturday morning when it goes out. Now, Zach's going to actually post this on YouTube in, a, in an hour or so. Right. So if you go to Revere Asset on YouTube, just Revere Asset and, and hit subscribe, you'll get, a, you'll get an alert as soon as this show is posted. And so it makes it a lot, a whole lot easier. folks. Have a safe weekend, and we'll talk to you next week on Your Money. Because it's not how much you make in the markets, how much you can keep.
Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.